0: From the great state of Ohio, Buckeye Firearms Association presents Keep and Bear Radio, fighting for Second Amendment rights, calling out media lies, and telling the gun grabbers to come and take it. Now, Keep and Bear Radio. If someone is threatening your life, do you have to retreat? before using lethal force. Depends on what state you live in. If you live in Ohio, no, at least after April 6th, 2021. We're going to tell you what that means and discuss the universal standard to determine when lethal force is justified. I'm Dean Reek, Executive Director of Buckeye Firearms Association, and I'm joined on the phone by Sean Maloney, a criminal defense attorney practicing in all areas of firearm-related law. Hey, Sean, how you doing? I'm doing pretty good, Dean. How are you? Oh, not too bad. Things are warming up here. Spring is coming and looks like we might be seeing the light at the end of the tunnel on this whole pandemic thing. So this year's got to be better, right?
1: Yeah, well, let's hope so. I was in the state house, of course, uh, for Buckeye Fire Association earlier in the week and, and things have not quite returned to normal yet, but you can tell things are loosening up and, and and we're hopeful that things will return to normal pretty soon.
0: Can't be too soon for me, that's for sure. And one of the great things coming up here is Ohio's duty to retreat, which has been abolished. And just so everyone uh, uh, has some context on this, we're talking about Senate Bill 175, which was a monumental victory for Buckeye Firearms Association. And it was signed on Monday, January 4th of this year, 2021. And it will become law on April 6th, 2021. So as at the time that we're recording this, That's just a couple weeks away. So, um, Sean, let's just start right at the beginning. Whether somebody's listening here in Ohio and this new law is going to affect them or whether they're living someplace else and they're uh, thinking about duty to retreat, let's just discuss the concept itself. What is duty to retreat? Can you define that for us?
1: Well, essentially, Dean, the duty to retreat means that you're required by law to attempt or try to escape before you use lethal force or the only option was to use them to force, survive, or avoid the situation. So the way the law stands now in the state of Ohio, if you're threatened with serious bodily injury or death, your first move is to determine whether you can escape before you can do anything else. And if you can safely retreat or escape, then you must do so.
0: So where does this come from? Because this, I'm, I'm not sure this is making a lot of sense to me, and I don't know why we have it in Ohio. If you're being threatened, it seems to me that your first job is to defend yourself. and if it's not time for that weapon to come out or it's not time for you to defend yourself, you know, why do we have this duty to retreat it, it? It just isn't quite making sense to me.
1: Well you know and that's a good point. It's really not anything that comes from common law because it's not common law. In fact, common law says that if you're in fear of death or serious father injury or harm, then you have a right to use lethal force to protect yourself. I think, historically, as laws were written concerning self-defense, someone decided that to throw duty retreat in. So once you've made the decision that you're you're in immediate fear of death or serious bodily injury or harm, you have to take the secondary question and ask yourself: Is there any possible way I can retreat from this situation? And I, I think what happened was, as uh, statutorily, when people draft. The, the current laws or common law things like this happen, and I think essentially that's, what, that's what's happened in Ohio. And as as we've seen with the burden shift that the Buckeye Farms Association was able to accomplish a couple years ago, that was an old common law that again was changed. So I think that's where this comes from. Uh, is common laws changed, statutory new laws are drafted, and we have to live with them until until you and I and the rest legislative law. Directors in Buckeye Farms Association can change the law uh, to where it should be.
0: Now, there's another concept that I think most people do understand. It's called Castle Doctrine, and we got that in 2008. What's the relationship between Castle Doctrine and duty to retreat?
1: Well, really, duty to retreat and the Castle Doctrine are almost exactly the same, except picture putting a jacket on in your house for Castle Doctrine, which says that if if you're in a, a home that you have a right to be in, uh, and, and you're attacking at home, then under those circumstances, you don't have a, a duty to retreat from your house, and the presumption is you properly use self-defense to protect yourself. So that only applies in the state of Ohio to your home and to your vehicle or the vehicle of an immediate relative. Now, with the duty to retreat being eliminated, essentially the castle doctrine the reasonableness that you can use lethal force as soon as you determine. You're in fear of death or of injury or harm. It takes place in your home, your car, or outside in the streets, anywhere you have a lawful
0: right to be. So it would be fair to say that by removing the duty to retreat in Ohio, it's sort of like we're taking castle doctrine and just expanding it to everywhere else that you can legally be. Is that is that accurate?
1: That, that, that's exactly what you've done. Uh, I always say you put the manual of the castle doctrine on, you put a jacket on that is castle doctrine, and now you can walk around everywhere.
0: So there's another term that's bandied about quite a bit. And we tend not to use that term at uh, Buckeye Firearms Association because it's not actually in the law. And the, this term or this phrase is stand your ground. So what's the difference between stand your ground and duty to retreat?
1: Well, essentially it's the same thing, but stand your ground really isn't mentioned in the law anywhere. Stand your ground, I think, may have been created somewhere along the lines by the media. But essentially, standing your ground means that you don't have to retreat. Once you're in fear of death or serious bodily injury or harm, you don't have to retreat, and you can use them to force at that point in time. Of course, removing the duty of retreat simply states that you no longer have to consider safe avenues of retreat as soon as you determine that that you're you're in danger of death or serious bodily injury or harm. So standing your ground is kind of a sexier term in, in some places, but really they mean the same thing. Uh, I always like to say, "Removing the duty to retreat, or there is no duty to retreat," because stand, "stand your ground" has a certain negative connotations.
0: Yeah, I mean that's that's the way I've always seen it. Um, I, I remember years ago, where was it? Was it in Florida where they they first had this, and, and they were calling it "stand your ground"? Is, is Florida the first place you remember?
1: Yeah, Florida was the first place, and it really, really became highlighted in the George Zimmerman case. And, and interestingly enough. Stand your ground was never an issue in that trial, but that's when everybody was screaming, stand your ground. Uh, and stand your ground needs to be eliminated, and stand, and stand your ground needs to go away. But essentially, that's probably the first place we heard of stand your ground, is when they removed the duty retreat, the from Florida, and then, of course, with the George Zimmerman case, uh, they considered that a, a, a moniker stand your ground case, which in all, in all actuality wasn't, but it was a victory for uh, for pro-gun advocates.
0: Well, I just know every time that the anti-gun folks talk about this, they'll use the term to stand your ground. And it does sound pretty aggressive. It you know, makes it sound like that you know, you're just not going to take any guff from people. And if somebody looks at you funny, you're going to shoot them.
1: And, Dean, they also call it the Dirty Harry Law. But remember, you know, I've discussed this before in the past, and we know that nothing occurs until we make the subjective decision that we're in immediate fear of death and serious bodily injury or harm. Nothing else comes into consideration until we're faced with the immediacy of having to make a decision to save our own lives. Then we start thinking about the duty to retreat, or we think about using self-defense.
0: Right. So duty to retreat, that's the actual phrase that's in the law, right? Correct. And so we're basically all this will do come uh, April 6th is that that won't be there anymore. So all, all, everything else remains the same, right? I mean, this doesn't give anybody any extra rights. It doesn't mean you can carry in places where you couldn't before. All it's really doing is move, removing the duty to retreat, that and that alone.
1: Exactly. Essentially, it's putting us on equal footing from the bad guy that's attacking us. We have no other concern is to protect our body. Are we subjectively in fear of death or serious bodily injury or harm? If so, then we can act. We don't have any secondary considerations. There, there's nothing, and it's important to note for everybody out there, that nothing occurs until we're faced with the decision of, are we in fear of death or serious bodily injury or harm? And if so, then we can act to protect ourselves.
0: Yeah, it always seemed a little unfair that the law uh, appeared to be really concerned about the person committing the crime, the violent person, the person who was doing the attack, as opposed to the person who was being attacked, the victim. So the way that I've looked at this is this, as you said, just puts everybody on equal footing. If you have to defend yourself, you can concentrate on that and not worry about the safety of the person who's attacking you, which to me is just incredibly unfair.
1: Well, it always has been unfair, and and for a lot of reasons, uh, laws need to be modified because of that. As a concealed carry holder, as a law-abiding citizen for all of us, we're always behind the eight ball, so to speak. We're always reacting. So when the the bad guy or the bad person attacks us, we're reacting to a situation. We're not on the offensive, so we're on the defensive. So given the fact that now we don't have any secondary considerations about retreating from the situation, and we can immediately use legal force, if that's the only way we can survive, then that puts us at least on somewhat equal footing, but not really, because, again, we're responding to the threat.
0: And it seems like also what would play into this is, you said, we're behind the eight ball. You know, if somebody attacks you, you're going to be pretty shaken up by that. You're going to be rattled. You're going to have all of these physiological changes, right? You, you know, your vision narrows, you have auditory exclusion, all these um, changes, chemical changes in your body. You know, that's a pretty bad time to try to be thinking about something as rational as, hmm, you know, can I run away? Can I get in a car? You know, can I escape? You, you're in a position where you're just not able to to think about those kind of things, and you really do need to just focus on the danger at hand.
1: Oh, absolutely. And you're, what we're talking about is the psychological aspect and physiological aspect of a threatening encounter. Our bodies, to some extent, shut down. But when we, when we allow ourselves just to react to the situation with no secondary considerations, we at least have, I don't want to say an advantage, but at least have the, the leisure to, to act and react as we would to save our lives.
0: So let's just talk about lethal force for a minute, because that's obviously a big part of this. If we're dealing with a situation where somebody is attacking you, there's a certain formula for determining whether you can actually use lethal force or not, which really makes this whole you know, duty to retreat thing irrelevant. And in your seminars, I remember that you came up with this wonderful formulation, and I'm going to actually read it. Using lethal force in self-defense is legally justifiable if you have an honest and reasonable fear that you are in immediate and unavoidable danger of death or great bodily harm. Now, there's a lot packed into that, but I've always thought that, you know, what a great explanation to understand when you can legally use lethal force. So uh, let's just unpack that for a minute and, and explain this. Using like the force and self-defense is legally justifiable if you have an honest and reasonable fear. So let's talk about those two things. What what do we mean by an honest and reasonable fear?
1: Well, when you're talking about an honest and reasonable fear, we're working the reasonable person standard involved. What a reasonable person faces the same circumstances. In fact, have acted the same way that you have, and if so, you've acted reasonably. And it's a subjective test, Dean. And and that's what we got to remember. The jury is told that they don't have the ability to judge you from the safety and security of a couch or of the jury box concerning what just happened. You need to step in the shoes of the person who used the force and self-defense and determine if I was faced with that situation, would I do the same thing? And essentially, that's common law. And essentially, that's what the jury charge is going to be. And that's how we need to prepare ourselves to answer the questions that are going to be asked. And in Ohio law, specifically, you know, you talk about, I always say the administration of justice, the administration of justice, the person that have the ability to hurt you, the opportunity to hurt you, and were you placed in jeopardy. And so I, I tell the jury, right, I'm on the jury stand, and I say, I was in fear of death or serious bodily injury or harm. And, and the prosecutor is going to say, okay, why? Well, because the person had a knife or a gun or a bat and was right in front of me, and certainly they had the ability to do me harm, and they were right there, so they had the opportunity, and I wasn't fear sure for my life. So that's broken down into, into the fundamentals uh, of what it takes uh, for the elements of, of uh, self-defense and to use lethal force.
0: So your your fear has to be honest and has to be reasonable. And the fear would be of immediate and unavoidable danger of death or great bodily harm. How do we define great bodily harm?
1: Well, certainly great bodily harm is injury that could lead to death, but it necessarily doesn't have to be death. It could be a broken arm. It could be strikes and blows about the head and the body that can cause who knows what kind of damage. How much, we don't have to take injury. We don't have to be bloody. We don't have to be broken to, to defend ourselves. So the fact that somebody's going to strike us, and to kick us, going to beat us, going to swing at us, that's enough. And so you have, this course, your fear of death. There's a knife, there's a bat, there's a gun in front of you. Force of there's bodily harm is that you're you're about to you know take a beating from somebody, whether it's by hands and fists or 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 a bat
0: or a knife. So okay, so we have this definition of when lethal force is legally justified. But there's some other elements that come into play. Again, I, I remember from some of your seminars, you talk about being the, the good guy. And when the police show up, you want to make sure that you have this mantle of innocence or this halo of, of innocence. Things like you don't want to be committing a crime. You, you know, you don't want to be the initial aggressor. You want to be in a place where you have a legal right to be, things like that. Can you explain those things? I mean, even if, even if all these other things come into play – it, it's really to your benefit to have this mantle of innocence for the for the police to see you as the actual victim, rather than complicating it by the fact that maybe you're doing something you shouldn't be doing.
1: Oh, absolutely, Dean, and, and that that that's a good question. I'm glad you brought that up. It's very important because as the initial aggressor, if I started a fight or I started a confrontation, and I'm the initial aggressor in that situation, and it it, it moves on and transgresses to the fact. Where I have to use lethal force to save myself? Well, I can't because I created the situation and I caused the situation. So at that point in time, I, I don't have the affirmative defense of self defense. And obviously, if I'm committing a crime, I'm robbing a bank, I'm burglarizing, and I get caught and the security guard gets me or the homeowner with a gun gets me and stops me, I can't, I can't use lethal force of self defense because I was committed to crime. And I didn't have the right to be where I was or the right to do what I was actually doing. So if I'm robbing a bank, starting a fight, breaking into somebody else's house, I don't have that mantle of innocence, and I don't have afforded to me the ability to claim the affirmative defense of self-defense.
0: Have you ever had a client where they've used lethal force in the correct way, but they, they were just in a circumstance that really kind of got them all screwed up because they were doing something they shouldn't have been doing?
1: Well, there's, I've had a, a couple clients, and through Second Call Defense uh, also I've had a few clients where it started out as they were being attacked, for instance. And at that time of being attacked, they began to use lethal force. The person broke themselves from that attack and started running away. And as soon as they, the, the, the person that attacked them began to run away, they withdrew from the situation. And when they withdrew from the situation... The person who was originally being attacked no longer has the ability to use lethal force because they're not in fear of death or serious bodily injury or harm anymore. Because the person who originally attacked them is now running away. At that point in time, your ability to use lethal force ends, and nothing happens until that person reengages. That that should happen. So I've had those situations where, and and I and I'm cognizant, and of course, I'm cognizant of the fact that. Sometimes you can't shut it off. You can't shut the adrenaline off, and you can't shut uh, your you're using lethal force or acting to protect yourself off that quickly. So those are also taken into uh, into account. But the perfect example is being attacked. The person sees that, wait a minute, you're an armed citizen, and now they're in trouble, and so they run away. At the point in time, they break off the attack, and they start running away. Your ability and justifications for using lethal force has now ended.
0: Well, Sean, thanks a lot. That's really good information. So uh, just as a reminder, uh, the duty to retreat in Ohio, uh, we've done away with that. It's abolished. It will vanish on April 6th, 2021. Mark your calendar because uh, this will have an uh, an effect on everyone in the state. Sean, thanks for being on the program. And uh, we'll have you back sometime to uh, explain some other elements of law that everyone needs to understand.
1: Well, thanks, Dean, and thanks uh, for everything you do to protect our right to keep bear arms and to protect ourselves and our families. I really appreciate it how uh, you and Buckeye Firearms Association fight for our rights.
0: That's all for this episode of Keep and Bear Radio. If you enjoyed the podcast, I urge you to subscribe. And please subscribe to the Buckeye Firearms Association newsletter at BuckeyeFirearms.org. If you'd like to become a member and support the work of BFA, Go to joinbfa.org. Use the discount code podcast to get $10 off your membership. That's joinbfa.org. We'll see you next time on Keep and Bear Radio.